How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends. Don't do it! Every time you cancel on a friend, a unicorn loses its horn and becomes a regular horse. Do you really want that on your conscience? Instead, grab an ice-cold can of Coca-Cola energy with delicious Coke taste and reinvigorating energy. Keep the unicorns alive! Show up every day with Coca-Cola energy. Energy you want, taste you love. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the Nocturnal Readers Box. If you love horror and sci-fi, the Nocturnal Readers Box is for you. Two novels every month delivered directly to your door, along with horror or sci-fi-themed bookmarks, art pieces, and more. Visit thenocturnalreadersbox.com to get the July Box, themed Your Greatest Fears, featuring items inspired by James Herbert, Edgar Allan Poe, Shirley Jackson, Clive Barker, Ramsey Campbell, and more. Get 15% off your first six-month subscription by using the promo code WEIRD15. That's all one word, WEIRD15. Sign up now at thenocturnalreadersbox.com or click the link in the show notes. The nightmares wouldn't stop. The sudden, bizarre, unsettling nightmares. They were always the same. They seemed almost real. Leah was sitting in a booth in a small, empty room with gray walls. A monotonic voice behind her said, Don't move or you might be hurt. She felt paralyzed. She heard clicking noises like an x-ray machine. Suddenly, she was lying on a table. A bright light shone in her eyes. She sensed people moving around, examining her. Then she was sitting up facing a short creature so hideous she could not look at its face. From a box, the strange being removed a shiny needle. At the tip was a silver marble. The creature moved closer toward Leah. At that point, Leah would jerk awake in her bed, terrified and drenched with sweat. Her screams would awaken her parents. But her mother, Leah recalls, would always admonish her. It's just a nightmare. Everybody has them. You shouldn't watch all that scary stuff on TV. Leah now believes it wasn't just a nightmare. She believes it was real. She is one of the people whose stories you might expect to see in a supermarket tabloid under the heading, Humans Who Believe They've Been Abducted by Aliens. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. And if you're already a fan of the show, please help me spread the darkness worldwide leave a rating and review of the podcast in your podcast app, share a link to this episode with your friends, and even more importantly, post it to social media, and a huge thank you in advance for doing so. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… The Anatomy Act of 1832 allowed doctors, anatomy lecturers, and medical students greater access to cadavers and allowed for the legal donation of bodies to medical science. But the act would never have come to be 
had it not been for a series of murders committed in order to sell the corpses. After being confronted with his crimes, Wesley Allen Dodd claimed that death was the only way to make sure he never committed them again. Pauline Picard's family thought their missing daughter had come back home. Then a body was discovered. You might not believe in fairies, but you might if one kept calling your name. On April 22, 1920, seven members of the Wolf family were buried. Their murders were the start of a bizarre and bloody series of events that still reverberate in the Turtle Lake, North Dakota area today. And you may be average in every way, average in height, income, attractiveness, but something must be special about you if you are continually being abducted by aliens. That story is up first. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. When Leah recounted her alien abduction story in 1993, Leah lived in Prince George's County, Maryland, worked at a bank, and was engaged to be married. She was thin with blue eyes. She was, in her words, average-looking and average in every way. Knowing that most people react with scorn and ridicule at the mention of UFOs and extraterrestrial life, she asked that her last name not appear with her story. I used to think I belonged in a mental institution, to be honest with you, she says, but I don't think anymore that I'm crazy. I go to school, I work full-time, I pay my bills like anybody else. I think other people think I'm crazy. The subject of abductions by otherworldly beings is so far out, so utterly fantastic, that most people, even today, cannot begin to fathom it. Many will not take it seriously. It is unbelievable unthinkable. Imagine how Leah felt in 1993. What's really happening? No one knows for sure, but one thing is clear. Something has shattered Leah's and others' calm, secure existence on planet Earth. Whether the rest of us accept or reject their stories is irrelevant. We cannot assuage their fear. It is palpable. The torment is real. Leah's torment began when she was in the fourth grade. She remembers clearly. She was outside her apartment in Prince George's County playing with her sisters and other children. It was dusk. They heard a hum or a buzz like a swarm of bees. They saw a disc-like object, wingless, silver-gray, a row of lights along the edge creep at treetop level over the apartment complex. It hovered above a parking lot between buildings and then drifted away. Leah and her sister ran inside to tell their parents. The girls even drew pictures. My father wanted to call somebody, Leah says, but my mother said no, we had made it up. But all of us saw it. We talked about it for days at school. Shortly after that, Leah says the recurring nightmare began. She dreamed it on and off for a decade, from when she was 10 until about 20 dreams are only part of her story. When she was 12 or 13, she and her sister, who is two years younger, 
were staying at their grandparents' house in St. Mary's County. They were in separate beds in the same room when a ball of lightning, as Leah describes it, passed through a window and curtain into the room. About the size of a tennis ball, it glided between the beds, bounced off a door, and vanished. A couple seconds later, another lightning ball did the same thing, and then another. Leah says there might have been 20 in all. For a long time afterward, Leah feared she was losing her mind. But then, five years ago, she and a friend were at a mall outside a bookstore. Leah spotted a display of books, the covers of which featured a drawing of a grotesque creature with big, black, almond-shaped eyes. The book was Communion, A True Story, the writer Whitley Stryber's account of his abductions by aliens. Lee pointed at the drawing and screamed, Oh my God! Oh my God! That's them! That's them! They were the creatures in her nightmare. That's when it registered, Leah says. That's when I said, wait a minute, something's going on here. It was the first she had heard of abductions by space creatures. She read the book and then a couple of others on the subject. She became convinced that the terrifying events, the nightmares, the night of the lights, perhaps other unexplained events as well, had been abductions. As we are aware, Leah was not alone. Over the past few decades, hundreds of credible abductees have come forward and detailed their ordeals. The phenomena occurs in various forms and intervals, as Leah was about to find out. Strange things continued to happen to her. While visiting friends in the West Virginia mountains, she was floated out of the house, taken aboard a spaceship, and handed a baby. It was a boy with leathery skin, a thin neck, and an oversized head with patches of red hair. It had huge eyes, she says, but they weren't coal black like those of the adult aliens. They were blue. I don't know why, and I know this sounds strange, Leah says in a voice trembling with emotion, but as soon as I held him in my arms, I knew he was mine. I felt like I was his mother. She rocked him and talked quietly to him, she says, as several aliens watched. Leah hesitates and says almost apologetically, I know this doesn't make any sense. Even though she had trouble sleeping and often felt as if she was being watched, she says she has kind of gotten used to the idea of being abducted. I don't like it, but there's nothing I can do about it as far as I can see, she says. If they were going to hurt me, I think they would have done it a long time ago. She knows what the skeptics say, but she says they don't give people enough credit for knowing the difference between what's actually happened to them and what they might have imagined. Leah says she was never abused as a child. She says she has no reason to make up a story so crazy and bizarre. Why does she think the aliens chose her? I have no idea, she says. I don't know who they are, where they come from, what they're doing, nothing. I just want people to understand that this is real, this is happening. It's out there and you're going to have to accept it sooner or later. And Leah's ordeal continues. I can preface this a little by saying my home province of Newfoundland has lots of stories about fairies. This took place when I was about 15 or 16 years old. 
My friends and I wanted to build a place in the woods where we could go smoke cigarettes and drink beer without having to worry about getting caught. It wasn't going to be anything fancy, just somewhere to sit and maybe not get wet. The work was going well. We'd used materials that weren't needed, found and stolen, but my friends ran out of nails. I still had a pocketful. My friends told me that they were going to leave to look for more, leaving me behind, alone, and trying to get a little more work done. I was by myself for maybe a half hour, and I started to feel like I was being watched. I stopped working and looked around. I didn't see anything, and all I could hear was the rolling of the waves against the shore. I went back to work, and I heard someone, something, call my name. I yelled out for my friends to see if they were on their way back. I got no answer. I sat down to get a drink, and I heard someone call my name again. By now, I was starting to feel pretty anxious. I tentatively called out to my friends again and again, and I got no answer. Then I heard my name again as if someone was beckoning me to follow. I had heard plenty of stories of men getting lost in the woods because they heard a voice calling their name. Being sufficiently creeped out, I decided that I was going to leave to find my friends. Just as I threw my backpack on my shoulder, my friends showed up. I cursed them out for trying to scare me but they swore they had no idea what I was talking about. And then, all of a sudden, there was a deafening, blood-curdling scream. I looked at my friends and saw that they had heard it too. We grabbed our backpacks and ran out of the woods, leaving the tools and materials we gathered behind. We never went back to that spot, and I still shiver at the thought of the scream we heard. One afternoon in 1989, Wesley Allen Dodd walked into the bathroom of a movie theater in Camas, Washington. There, he spotted a five-year-old boy. A few moments later, Dodd grabbed him and started moving towards the door. As Dodd walked out of the theater with the boy in his arms, the child started crying. The theater employees immediately became suspicious when the boy started fighting to get out of Dodd's grasp. When the boy began screaming for help, they knew that they were witnessing an abduction and ran after Dodd. Realizing that he was not going to get away with the abduction, Dodd released the boy just outside the theater and ran to his car. Meanwhile, the employees told the child's mother and her boyfriend, William Graves, that her son had almost been abducted. Graves immediately asked for a description of Dodd's car and took off on foot after him. Luckily, he found the car had broken down just a few blocks from the theater. Pretending to offer help, Graves approached Dodd and put him in a headlock. Graves then physically hauled Dodd back to the theater where other witnesses bound Dodd's arms with a belt as they waited for the police to arrive. Once in police custody, Dodd started to talk. The incident in the movie theater wasn't the first abduction. There had been many others, and not all the victims had been as lucky as the boy in the movie theater. After three days of questioning, Dodd confessed to having murdered three children. Armed with a search warrant, police searched Dodd's room in the town of Vancouver, Washington. Inside, they found photographs of one of the murdered children, Lee Isley, and the boy's underwear. 
Nearby was a homemade torture rack and a diary containing a meticulous record of the murder. With this evidence, the detectives could close the book on at least three murders. But the question remained, who was Wesley Allen Dodd? Wesley Allen Dodd grew up in Washington in a somewhat troubled home. Dodd was a shy child, but he also seemed to have a dark sexual compulsion to expose himself to other children, something he began doing at just 13 years old. But exposing himself wasn't enough, and Dodd began molesting his younger cousins and neighborhood kids. At 15, Dodd was arrested for one of those molestations. Due to his youth, though, the police declined to pursue charges and recommended he get counseling instead. Dodd continued molesting children for the next several years. In 1981, he joined the Navy. He was discharged after his superiors discovered he was molesting children on the base. This time, he served only 19 days in jail and was ordered to undergo counseling again. The counseling had no effect on Dodd's compulsion to harm children, and he fell into a routine of molesting children, being caught, and being released with a slap on the wrist. But his sexual desires continued to grow darker over the years. Dodd wrote in his diary about a desire to not just molest children, but to murder them. Darker still, he began writing about the possibility of performing medical experiments on his victims to turn them into zombies he could victimize at will. In September 1989, Dodd lured Cole and William Near, 11 and 10 respectively, to a wooded area. There, he forced them to undress and tied the boys to a tree. He then began molesting them. When he finished, he stabbed the boys repeatedly and fled the area. Both boys died of their wounds soon after. A month later, Dodd lured four-year-old Lee Isley to his apartment. He kept Isley overnight, molesting him while taking photographs. He wanted to wait to kill Isley so that the body would be fresh enough to perform experiments on. In the morning, Dodd strangled Isley and hung his body in the closet before leaving for work. When he returned, he took the body down and disposed of it in trash bags, keeping the boy's underwear. The body was soon discovered, sparking a manhunt for the killer. Dodd, meanwhile, stayed in his apartment making plans for future murders and constructing a rack on which to torture his next victim. This was the planned fate of the boy at the movie theater two weeks later. Fortunately, he was apprehended before he could claim another life. In court, Wesley Allen Dodd refused to speak in his own defense, claiming it was pointless. He requested, instead, that he be executed by hanging, the same way his last victim died. He stated that he hoped that it would bring peace to his victims' families. Dodd seems to have understood that the system had failed to stop him too many times before. He was confident that if he were to be released, he would kill again. It's hard to say how sincere Dodd's remorse was, but he clearly wanted to be executed. Dodd actively resisted any attempt to appeal his execution. I must be executed before I have an opportunity to escape or kill someone else, he said. If I do escape, I promise you, I will kill and rape again, and I will enjoy every minute of it. In the end, Dodd got his wish. He was executed by hanging in 1993, the first judicial hanging in the U.S. since 1965. 
The technique was now so unfamiliar that the executioners had to use an army manual from the 1880s as a guide. Dodd's last words were a statement that he had found God and other child molesters could change by doing the same. Wesley Allen Dodd stated a desire to help stop people like him from offending. And in a way, he did. Shortly after Dodd's crimes came to light, Washington passed some of the toughest laws in the nation against sex offenders. One can only hope that in some way the tragic fate of Dodd's victims helped save the lives of other children. I am a very busy guy. You know, I can't afford to be without energy and focus, nor can I afford to be without that often hard-to-reach thing called motivation. Well, fortunately, I found the solution a few months ago. It's dawn to dusk. You know, most people only need a single capsule, but I take two each morning around 8 a.m., and not only does it give me that quick jolt of energy I need as I start my workday, but it lasts a full 10 hours. 10 hours! Your high-calorie energy drink is not going to do that for you. In fact, this morning, I woke up and I was so tired I couldn't keep my eyes open. And usually when that happens, I have to take a nap in the middle of the day. But around 8 a.m., I took the dawn to dusk, and I'm here it is, uh, 6.30 in the evening as I record this, I'm still feeling awake. Amazing. Dawn to dusk is your solution if you have any problems like that, dragging in the afternoon, having a hard time starting up in the morning and you can try it for yourself at BrickHouseWeird.com. That's a special page they designed just for my weirdo family, BrickHouseWeird.com. And you can save 10% off Dawn to Dusk if you use the promo code WEIRD at checkout. That's BrickHouseWeird.com. Use the promo code WEIRD, you can save 10% off your bottle of Dawn to Dusk. The terror of a parent whose child has vanished is hard to imagine. Is it possible that parents in that situation could convince themselves of anything to avoid the horror of the truth? That may be the only explanation for the strange disappearance of Pauline Picard. Pauline was only two years old when she disappeared from her family's farmhouse near the rocky end of Brittany in France in 1922. Volunteers scoured the countryside to no avail. Then, two weeks later, when hope was nearly lost, word came from the town of Cherbourg, 250 miles away, that a little girl had been found wandering alone. The Picards raced to Cherbourg. They recognized their daughter immediately and embraced her. But oddly, the little girl did not seem to recognize her parents. What's more, she did not respond when spoken to in Breton, the regional dialect spoken by the Picards at home, and there was no explanation of how a toddler had managed to travel 250 miles. But neighbors back in Brittany accepted the girl as Pauline, as did the police officer who accompanied her from Cherbourg. Her strange behavior was put down to trauma. Questions were pushed aside, and life returned to normal. But then, there was a gruesome discovery. The badly decomposed body of a little girl was found not far from the Picard farm. The area had been thoroughly searched, so it appeared someone had put it there recently. The body was naked, and the head was severed. 
The girl's clothes were folded neatly near the body. They were the clothes Pauline had been wearing when she disappeared. Newspapers from around the world wrote about the dark twist, including the New York Times. Adding to the mystery, local reports claimed the skull discovered with the body was not that of a little girl at all, but a grown man. The Picards accepted the grisly discovery as proof that their biological daughter was dead. A month later, the little girl who had lived with them was sent to an orphanage. The Picards never learned what happened to their daughter. The police never found her killer. And the fate of the mysterious little girl found wandering in Cherbourg is lost to history. In contrast to the increase in numbers of executions in the wake of the Bloody Code, the Judgment of Death Act 1823 saw the number of crimes punishable by death in Britain drop dramatically. Good news, in theory. But since medical and anatomical schools were only legally allowed to dissect the bodies or cadavers of those who had been condemned to death, this led to an extreme shortage of dead bodies available. However, the financial compensation offered by medical schools meant that some unscrupulous types soon found a way around this shortage of bodies, leading to a rash of grave robbing by those known as resurrectionists. Instances of grave robbing became so commonplace that relatives were known to watch over the recently dug graves of their dearly departed, and watchtowers were installed in cemeteries across the land. The fresher the body, the more money it was worth. Thus, it didn't take long before grave robbing graduated to anatomy of murder, murder committed with the sole intention of providing the remains for medical research and attracting a monetary reward. The most infamous were the Burke and Hare murders in Edinburgh, which occurred between 1827 and 1828. William Burke and William Hare both originated from the province of Ulster in the north of Ireland and moved to Scotland to work on the Union Canal, Burke having abandoned a wife and two children back in Ireland. The pair met and became close friends when Burke moved with his mistress, Helen McDougall, to lodgings in Tanner's Close in the Westport area of Edinburgh. Hare lived on the same street and was running a boarding house there with Margaret Laird, a widower with whom he lived as man and wife and who was also known as Margaret Hare, even though they were not legally married. The pair's first foray into the world of medical science happened in December 1827 when one of Hare's tenants, an elderly army pensioner by the name of Old Donald, died of natural causes whilst still owing four pounds in rent. To cover the man's outstanding debt, the pair weighed his coffin down with tanning bark prior to his funeral and took his body to the medical school at Edinburgh University, where they were swiftly pointed in the direction of Professor Robert Knox, a popular anatomy lecturer. Knox paid the duo seven pounds and ten shillings for Donald's body. Encouraged by the ease with which they had made this money, the pair struck again in early 1828, when another tenant named Joseph became ill. Too impatient to see if Joseph would actually die from his afflictions, Burke and Hare took it upon themselves to help him along, plying him with whiskey and then suffocating him 
by covering his mouth and nose while he was forcibly restrained. This became their favored method of execution as it left the body unmarked and undamaged for the students who were later to dissect the cadavers. In the aftermath of their killing spree, the practice became known as burking. In the absence of any further ill tenants, the pair decided to entice victims to the lodging house, preying on Edinburgh's poorest communities who were less likely to be missed or recognized. In total, Burke and Hare are said to have murdered at least 16 people for between 7 to 10 pounds apiece, although the real total is likely to be a lot higher. A local prostitute, Janet Brown, was lucky to escape with her life when she and a friend, Mary Patterson, were invited to stay by Burke. Having excused herself earlier in the evening, Janet returned to find her friend missing and was told Mary and Burke had stepped out. Having waited for her friend to return, Janet eventually decided to leave, having no idea that Mary was actually lying dead in the next room, ready to be taken to Knox, and that she herself was the next likely victim. Burke and Hare soon became greedy, and no one was safe. An elderly grandmother was killed with an overdose of painkillers, and Hare murdered her blind young grandson by breaking the boy's back across his knee. Even a relative of Helen's, Anne McDougall, was unhesitatingly dispatched. However, with greed came carelessness. A number of Knox's students were said to have recognized Mary and two other prostitutes murdered by the pair. Elizabeth Halden and her daughter, who made the unfortunate mistake of calling at the lodging house to inquire after her missing mother. The gossip was exacerbated when the pair brought in a handicapped children's entertainer by the name of James Wilson, who was well-known in the city as Daft Jamie. Knox was said to strongly deny the identity of the body, but swiftly removed his head and deformed foot during the dissection. Following an argument between Burke and Hare, which was caused by Burke's suspicion that Hare and Margaret were cutting himself and Helen out of deals with Knox, Burke and Helen began to take in their own lodgers. On Halloween, 1828, Burke and Hare's last victim, Marjorie Campbell Dosherty, was invited to stay with Burke and Helen on the pretense that she was a distant relation of Burke's mother. Burke's other lodgers, a couple called James and Anne Gray, were invited to stay temporarily at Hare's boarding house that evening so the murder could take place. On their return to Burke's lodgings the following day, the Grays were told that Marjorie had been asked to leave because she had been flirtatious with Burke. The couple became suspicious when they were not allowed to enter the spare room where they had left their belongings, and when left alone they discovered Marjorie's dead body hidden under the bed. The couple challenged Helen over their discovery, and she offered them a bribe of $10 a week if they would keep the discovery to themselves. The Grays refused and reported the murder to the police. However, in the meantime, word must have reached Burke and Hare by the time the police arrived at the premises, Marjorie's body had been removed and taken to Knox. Burke and Helen, and later Hare and Margaret, were all arrested and gave conflicting accounts of what had taken place, with Burke and Hare each blaming each other. The police investigation soon led them to Knox, and James Gray identified the body found in his lecture hall as Marjorie. Having read about the murder in a local newspaper, Janet Brown later identified clothes found at Hare's lodging house 
as belonging to her missing friend, Mary Patterson. However, the police had little hard evidence to prove the crimes had been committed, and eventually the Lord Advocate Sir William Ray offered Hare immunity in return for testifying against Burke and Helen, which he was more than happy to do. The trial began on Christmas Eve 1828, and early the following day, Burke and Helen were both charged with Marjorie Daugherty's murder. Burke was also charged with the murder of Mary Patterson and James Wilson. While Helen's complicity in Marjorie's murder was deemed not proven under Scottish law and she was set free, Burke was sentenced to death by hanging. William Burke was hanged at Lawn Market in front of a boisterous cheering crowd of over 25,000 on January 28, 1829, and fittingly perhaps, after being put on public display, his body was donated to medical science. A number of anatomy students took ghoulish souvenirs of his skin, even using it to bind books and card holders. Burke's skeleton is still on display at Surgeon's Hall in Edinburgh next to his death mask and the life mask of Hare's face. Despite his obvious involvement in the murders, his accomplice Hare was released in February 1829 and escaped across the border into England. No one knows definitively what happened to Hare, but it has been rumored that he was thrown into a lime quarry by an angry mob and lived out his days as a blind beggar on the streets of London. Both Helen and Margaret also fled Edinburgh, with Helen said to have emigrated to Australia and Margaret to Ireland. And despite mass public outrage, Knox was also cleared of his involvement in the murders, as Burke claimed he had no idea where the bodies had come from. His reputation in ruins, Knox moved to London to try and salvage a career in medicine. The Burke and Hare murders followed swiftly afterwards by the 1831 murders committed by the London Burkers and Bethnal Green led to the Anatomy Act 1832, which allowed doctors, anatomy lecturers, and medical students greater access to cadavers and allowed for the legal donation of bodies to medical science effectively calling an end to the illegal body snatcher trade. On April 22, 1920, seven members of the Wolf family, along with their stable boy, were buried in a windswept cemetery in Turtle Lake, North Dakota. The entire family, except for its youngest member, an eight-month-old daughter named Emma had been slaughtered by an unknown assassin. The unlucky stable boy, Jacob Hofer, had been at the wrong place at the wrong time. The murders were the start of a bizarre and bloody series of events that still reverberate in the region today. Three weeks after the murders, a neighbor named Henry Lair confessed to the crime, but questions remain as to whether or not he actually killed the wolves. Player's confession to the police was both bizarre and terrifying. He said that he had gone to the wolf farm to speak to Jacob Wolf about one of his dogs that was attacked by Layer's cows. Wolf became very hostile, ordered him off the property, and loaded his shotgun. There was a scuffle, and the shotgun went off, killing Jacob's wife, Beata, and the stable boy, Jacob, who had been standing nearby. Jacob began to run, and Lair, finding the shotgun in his hands and two people dead, shot Jacob in the back and killed him. 
At the sound of the shots, daughters Maria, 9, and Edna, 7, ran into the barn. Layer followed them there and killed them. He then returned to the house and found the remaining wolf children, Bertha, 12, Lydia, 5, and Martha, 3, hiding in terror. He shot and killed the older girls and then bludgeoned Martha to death with a hatchet. He hid the bodies of the children that he killed in the house by dragging them down to the cellar. The others were stashed away in the barn and sloppily covered with straw and dirt. Then, seemingly without a care in the world, Lair returned to work on his farm. The bodies were discovered two days later. A neighbor noticed that the wolf's laundry was still hanging on the line to dry and went over to check on the family. He discovered the gruesome scene and found poor baby Emma still alive in her crib, but weak from cold and hunger. The crime would become North Dakota's most horrific mass murder. More than 2,500 people attended the funeral for the family and their stable boy, even though Turtle Lake's population at the time was only 395, minus the eight lost souls. Henry Lair's strange behavior began at the funeral. He opened all eight of the caskets and looked at the faces and confessed to the murders. He claimed the only reason he didn't kill Emma was because he didn't know that she was there. He was sentenced to spend his life in prison, and he died behind bars in 1925. But was Lair's confession the truth? Did he really kill the Wolf family as he claimed? Once in prison, Lair's story changed. He now said that he was innocent and that his bizarre behavior was merely caused by the terrible grief that he felt over his neighbor's deaths. The police had coerced his confession, he said, beaten him into signing a statement. He often wept, claiming to be innocent, and would cry, Oh, my children, my children. Many believed his claims of innocence and questions are still asked about the Wolf murders today leading a number of historians to believe that the murders were never solved. The Wolf family was buried in the Turtle Lake Cemetery. There is one large tombstone on their plot that reads in German, The Murdered Family. Every member of that tragic family is buried beneath that ground except for one. The orphaned Emma was raised by her aunt and uncle and went on to live a long life, dying at the age of 84 in 2003. She never forgot how lucky she had been on that cold day in April 1920 when she was permanently separated from a family that she was never able to know. If you like what you hear and you want to hear even more, consider becoming a patron. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness patron-only content, and bonus materials, including chapters of horror and paranormal books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them. Become a patron by clicking the link in the show notes, or visit WeirdDarkness.com and click on Become a Patron. If you liked this episode, please share a link to the episode on your social media, tell your friends about the show, and please leave a rating and review. I might read your review here in the podcast. Stay up to date on everything I'm doing with my newsletter, The Marler Sheet. It's free, and you can sign up for it right now at WeirdDarkness.com or look for the link in the show notes. Do you have a dark tale to tell? 
Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true and you can find links in the show notes. The story of Burke and Hare was written by Ben Johnson. Talking Fairies was submitted anonymously to WeirdDarkness.com. Leah's Abductions was posted at ProfoundHistory.com. Pauline Picard, The Unending Mystery of a Little Girl's Disappearance was posted at TheLineup.com. The Wolf Family Murders was written by Troy Taylor. And His Crimes Were So Heinous He Begged to Be Executed was written by Wyatt Red. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And I'm going to be traveling around the Midwest a lot in the weeks and months to come. I would love to see you in person if you can come out to one of those dates. You can find details on all the events that I do plan to be at by clicking on events at WeirdDarkness.com. Coming up June 16th, I'm going to be at the DuPage Comic Con in Wheaton, Illinois. June 22nd and 23rd, I'll be at the Haunted America Conference in Alton, Illinois. And then June 24th, I will have a table at the St. Louis Mighty Con in St. Louis, Missouri. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and more. I have links to all my social media at the top of the page at WeirdDarkness.com. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Hey weirdos, uh, the folks at MyPillow asked me to try out one of their MyPillows and let them know what I thought about it, and then let you know about it as well. Well, I did, and you know what? I am sold. I love MyPillow. I'm not folding pillows in half, I don't have a flat pillow anymore, I don't, I don't have to use two pillows to get comfortable at night. This really did change the way that I sleep, so as I promised them, I'm letting you know about MyPillow. Uh, you can stay cool all night long on this pillow. You don't have to wake up at 3 a.m. to flip to the cool side of the pillow. If you're somebody that loves cool pillows, you'll love this. It also keeps its shape. You don't have to reshape your pillow in the middle of the night or re-fluff it when you're getting ready to go to bed. It also comes with a 60-day money-back guarantee, so if you do try it and then decide against keeping it, you can return it no problem. If you keep it, though, it comes with a 10-year warranty. 10 years for a pillow. That's a that's a big warranty that you're not going to have on your current pillows. And uh, you can also toss your my pillow into your washer and dryer and it's like new again. You can't do that with any pillows that you currently have. Trust me, I know. So if you'd like to check it out, maybe try a my pillow for yourself. They have set up a special deal just for you, my weirdo family. You can get two premium my pillows for one low price. To do that, go to MyPillow.com and then enter the promo code WEIRD. That's MyPillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. Or if you'd rather do it by phone, you can call 800-945-7192 and then use the promo code WEIRD there. Again, that phone number is 1-800-945-7192. Or you can do it online at MyPillow.com. Either way, be sure to use that promo code WEIRD. <laughs> 